I'm Dr. Brent Schillinger, along with Dr. Abby Strauss. Today, we're speaking with a colleague who has a tremendous amount of expertise in the management of pain. It's Dr. Lynn Webster. Lynn is Senior Fellow at the Center for U.S. Policy. He's author of The Painful Truth, co-producer of It Hurts Until You Die documentary. He's past president of the Academy of Pain Medicine. He headed the Lifetree Pain Clinic in Salt Lake City for 20 years, went on in 2010 to focus on clinical research into safer and more effective therapies for chronic pain and addiction. Dr. Webster is board certified in anesthesia, board certified in pain medicine, and has a special certification in addiction medicine. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Webster. Thank you for inviting me. We know in the area of ethics, doctors have ethical duties. We have the basic tenets of medical ethics. Probably the one that we think about the most is the non-maleficence, the do no harm. In some circles, people have suggested that prescribing opioids to treat people in pain actually violates the do no harm edict of medical ethics. You wrote an article in the Pain News Network where the title was, First Do No Harm Doesn't Mean No Prescription Opioids. If you could elaborate a little bit on that. This is an intersection of medical ethics, as you say, and clinical practice. I think most of us have been told that we should guide our practices with that phrase. The problem is we can't practice medicine if we follow that. There is nowhere in medicine that it's possible to not do harm. That's true in my field, in the field of pain medicine or in addiction medicine. And just prescribing opioids doesn't mean you're necessarily going to be providing harm or producing harm. In fact, the lack of prescribing may be just as dangerous to the patient because this is all about the patient. It may be just as dangerous to the patient if they don't have adequate pain control, whether they are terminally ill or whether they have acute post-op pain, but also for those who have chronic non-cancer pain. First, do no harm really should not exist as a phrase. We all think that we want to not harm anybody. And of course, no physician that I know of wants to harm, but you can't practice medicine without the risk. Wouldn't you say we can't ignore the other tenant of medical ethics, beneficence, that we have to do good for our patients? And then it ties in with something I believe you referenced in your article, the doctrine of double effect from the Catholic Church from St. Thomas of Aquinas many centuries ago. That is absolutely correct. We've got to have a risk-benefit analysis. I mean, that's the way we think of it these days. Back then, it was about doing good or doing bad and that you wanted to have more good than bad. It had to be morally good and that the good effect always had to produce more effect than the bad effect, and you couldn't use the bad effect to get the good effect. And there has to be some proportionality to this. Opioids or anticonvulsants or antidepressants, all of them fall into this category of side effects. They all do. In the original interpretation of the Hippocratic Oath or in the phrase, first do no harm, it even prohibited the use of a knife. It meant that you could not harm somebody by creating an incision, which is obviously not something that we agree to today. You have to have operations with patients to surgery all the time. And even on a lower level, almost everything we do has a potential harmful effect. Whether it is a drug, procedure, intervention, there's always that potential. What we really are trying to do is provide more good than bad, and that there has to be good proportionality to that. That's the double effect. This brings up a very interesting problem insofar as the definition of harm with opioids. It became completely confused for a while. There are the people legitimately needing opioids for pain relief, no question about it. 
Then there's the whole category who were using the opioids for inappropriate reasons to deal with their addictions. And then there's another category that seems to get lost from what I'm seeing. And that's when we use opioid, suboxone and methadone to maintain someone from falling back into dysfunctional behaviors. So harm becomes somewhat of a vague concept as preventing relapse. There's helping addiction, which is not good. And there's pain control. When I look back at the last two, three decades, I think we've come to better understand the differentiations for why a person is being given an opioid. Just your thoughts on that. They're, they're different. You're absolutely right. There is a continuum and there's a spectrum of reasons why somebody might be prescribed an opioid. They're often conflated in the minds of clinicians and certainly policymakers. It isn't like there's a switch, whether you are abusing them, you're addicted, or they help you. There is a continuum of behaviors of a response to the use of opioids that range from, of course, taking them as directed, and they provide the intended outcome, pain relief, without any adverse effect. On the other end of that spectrum are those who are not taking it for the intended purpose. They're taking it to escape, usually an emotional pain generated from any number of things. And then there's a subset of the individuals who have some genetic predisposition to the liking of the drug and will use the drug just for that emotional escape. But there are an infinite number of positions between what I started with, with taking it as directed for pain relief, and those who are using it for the wrong reason and become very much dependent on the drug and have destructive behaviors. I would see a lot of patients whose pain was severe. I was a tertiary referral center. I only saw people that were in severe pain, most of whom had failed to get adequate pain relief by most of their physicians. Unfortunately, many of them also had a mental health problem. And so we would try to treat them with opioids, but sometimes they, they would cross over and not use it just for the intended physical pain relief, but the mental pain relief. It would be challenging to identify when and where they would transition to the inappropriate use of the drug. It had to be individualized. Everybody is different. Their mental health history was critical in trying to identify maybe that transitional point. Have we gotten better at delineating those differences? I think that the knowledge is there. I don't believe that it has been internalized well within the medical field. I think that there's huge prejudices and biases that have been adopted by the medical field. There are many people today that are just plain anti-opioid, period. And they see no benefit to using an opioid. And then there are people that, and certainly patients, who believe they have no other option to use an opioid many physicians in our field and those who treat substance abuse from opioids just can't go there with the use of the opioids. They just, because of a lot of things, they've seen the adverse effects, they've seen the harm, they read the newspapers, and they see many of our colleagues being inspected by the DEA, and they're very concerned about their personal careers. We know a lot about what creates a problem with an opioid or many other drugs. We have not institutionalized it. We have not made it a part of our structure and our educational system so that that knowledge can be used in a wise way for the benefit of our patients.
would you say with all these moving parts and all these different perspectives and opinions, overall, as a medical profession, are we under-prescribing opioids for pain in this day and age? We under-prescribe and we over-prescribe. We're doing both. There are many people that are being denied access today to adequate treatment because of a lot of factors. A lot of it's the fear. A lot of it's about the harm that we have seen that opioids have created. Largely now all illicit drugs, not prescribed prescription drugs. The number of people who have been affected by prescription drugs in an adverse way has been about consistent for 20 years. But the number of people who are admitted for substance use disorders, opioid use disorders, or overdose deaths has skyrocketed, largely due to the illicit drug. And yet when we hear reporting, the reporting always says our opioid crisis is continuing. We have 100,000 deaths in 2001. The truth is that we had less than 15,000 are associated with prescription opioids. The rest are all of the other drugs, illicit opioids and non-opioid drugs, and almost all are in combination, meaning it's more than just the opioid involved. As a result of the huge drug crisis that we have, physicians have stopped prescribing medicines to many patients. And so for them, I would say their pain is undertreated or not treated. And in some cases, in many cases, an opioid is the only treatment for them that they can afford or is accessible, meaning insurance companies limit what you can do for many of them. There are others that are getting far too many opioids. The script pad is too easy. So we have both and a whole spectrum of, of not knowing who is at greatest risk, trying to look out for that particular individual to mitigate the harm to that individual, whether they have chronic pain or not. It doesn't matter. What is the message that we need to put out there? How do we need to educate our physicians to better balance the dynamics here? Now, balance is a good word. I think we need to listen to our patients. We need to try to meet them where they are. We also need to do a better job of screening individuals, looking for those individuals who have a history that could predispose them to the misuse and abuse of the drug. Now, misuse and abuse doesn't mean they'll become addicted and doesn't mean they'll overdose, but it means inappropriate use. We want to help manage that as well as we can, but most people are not going to misuse their medicine. The media has misinformed the public and most physicians. It's really a small percentage of our patients who are taking low, moderate doses of opioids that advance to a state of concern with the use of the opioids. Now, we want to avoid and prevent anybody from having harm from the opioids that we can. First, do no harm. Well, you can do a lot of harm by not treating the pain. And anything we do has an adverse effect. We have to be able to manage that. And physicians need to be educated about what addiction is, what abuse is, what's misuse and the differences and how to identify that behavior, but also understand there is a real need to treat pain. It strikes me that so many of the people who misuse the drugs, we are actually undertreating the psychiatric components of their life. And looking at Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous, they do a fabulous job without medications. And sometimes people need medications concurrently, but they look at the psychological component. And I am just always curious if physicians do not have the skills or do not take the time to listen to those aspects 
of their patient's life. Brent and I did a most fascinating interview a couple of weeks ago about the enhanced recovery after surgery protocols and how they listen to their patients, they set things up. The end result is that more people are getting good pain relief without extra medications. It's the process, it's the interaction that seems to be not there enough. It reminds me, when I first started treating people with chronic pain, they would come into my office after having been probably in chronic pain for an average of seven years and seen four or five different physicians and had not helped them. And I would take 15 or 20 minutes and just listen to their story. At the end of their story, I would say, I I believe you. And more often than not, those people would start to cry. The reason is because no one listened until I spent the time, I gave them all the time they needed. I found that that empathetic relationship decreased the need for medications. They just want to be validated often and know that somebody cares. They're not necessarily then going to jump off and try to treat that emotional pain that they come in with. So you're absolutely right. Are we getting better? As a profession, do we need to teach doctors how to do this? A real course in residency or medical school? Where are we on this? I think we are at the beginning. I don't think we're anywhere near where we need to be, partly because of our structure of the healthcare system and reimbursement doesn't pay for the type of interventions, the type of care that is needed. We need to find a different way to validate a patient's concerns, their complaints, to listen to them. Key is for the patient to feel that they've been heard. And that takes time and trust. Today, in the field of pain, because of the opioid crisis, because of the DEA, because of state laws, we are separating patients from their providers. Physicians are forced, they're judging their patient. They've created a conflict between the patient and the physician because the physicians are afraid. I think we have regressed terribly in the clinical world. If we are going to make a difference, we have to change the structure of our healthcare delivery system to allow our clinicians first to be educated. That's where our medical schools need to be engaged to talk about the importance of empathy. And then our healthcare structure has to be set up so that physicians can take the time and be financially compensated for that time, can use empathy in the way in which it's intended. Several years ago, Brent and I talked to a dentist, and the man has passed away because of cancer, a very sad loss. He worked in New York City in a pain clinic, and what he found that if they would do just what you said, he used to say that when someone would come in with a dental pain, some really intense dental pain, rather than first sending him to the dentist, he would send him to the psychologist. Yeah. What a difference it made. He said it was phenomenal. People ended up on pain medicine. Some did, of course. He began to realize that the first evaluator should be the psychologist. How fantastic. Pain used to be managed was multidisciplinary approach with behavioral medicine as a key component. I had both a psychologist and a psychiatrist in my practice. Everyone saw either one of them because almost everyone who has chronic pain will, if they didn't bring to the table when they develop the chronic pain, some mental health problem. I mean, it may be the lack of ability to cope. It could be something from childhood. It could be just the unrelenting pain that they have to live with and the stress that it has caused in that family unit for that individual. I think it's critical if we want to mitigate the use of drugs 
to have a good relationship, and that relationship has to be based on trust. If we focus specifically on the opioid crisis now, in the prevention realm, there was this big push setting up the PDMPs, prescription drug monitoring programs, and they're all excited that they got the opioid prescription rate down by something like 60%. But simultaneously, the opioid overdose deaths have accelerated. Largely, we're told, because people are driven to the streets to get the medicine that the doctors aren't writing prescriptions for anymore. I think there's truth to what you just said. The opioid overdose deaths and the abuse of opioids is a complicated problem that involves far more than just the amount of opioids prescribed. There actually is an inverse relationship with the amount prescribed and adverse outcomes. You can reduce the volume of opioids, but if there's still a need to treat the pain, those people are going to find a way to get access to the medicine. Then you have people who are using the opioids that have maybe been diverted illegally into their hands, so now they're going to go to the street. The other element here, the fentanyl. Fentanyl takes a small amount to be lethal. Morphine and heroin, you can get the psychological effect long before you get respiratory depression. That therapeutic window is much wider for the older used drugs like morphine and heroin. Now, if something's laced with fentanyl, that therapeutic window, which is not a therapeutic window if it's being used illicitly, is so narrow that it's hard to know whether or not you are going to be an overdose victim, or if you're going to get the effect that you sought. Probably the primary reason we have gotten into a drug overdose problem is social economic issues, income disparities, lack of mental health treatment and access throughout the country. We can see in areas of the country where we have the greatest problem in the Appalachia areas, there's really huge physical trauma, but there's huge psychological trauma in those areas too. So if we want to prevent the problem, we need to address the source of the problem, which are going to largely be social economic issues in the areas where we see the greatest problem. The narrative that we've heard a lot, certainly since I've gotten involved four or five years ago in the opioid arena, the narrative is, well, you know, most people who became addicted to the opioids, it's because they were prescribed something either for sports injury or dental pain. So therefore, yeah. the prevention is let's stop writing opioids for those two categories. Not as simple as that. Is that what you're saying? It is grossly misstating the source of the problem. There are people who have had sports injuries that go on and develop a problem. Those are small in number, and there's a lot more to it. Why do those people move on? It's usually because they have a genetic predisposition. They have some other mental problems that have contributed to their desire to continue to get the effect of the drug beyond the time they need it. It's much more complicated than what the media has led us to believe. That's so true of so many elements of modern medicine. And I'm sure you know and we know here, we compete with Google. Many people think that they truly understand the nuances of diagnosis and treatment. Yeah, And they don't. One of the things that I remember a teacher telling me when I was a resident, man was way ahead of his time. This was in New York City. We would see people who were suffering from chronic pain. And he would say that chronic pain eats up serotonin like an old steam engine eats up wood. <laughs> That's and a good 
And isn't that great? It's not always that simple. If you can get their mood balanced a little bit with other things, the suffering drops. Right. Then you have some doors that open. Yes, that's correct. Again, it gets back to the empathy. It gets back to trust, a relationship, and the suffering. That is all true. You said something that was really interesting. It reminds me of a friend of mine who is an addictionologist. And he said, you know, I go to these social parties with my wife and they ask what I do. And they say, he says, I'm, I'm an addictionologist. And he says, it is probably the only field in medicine where everyone at that party who's not medical knows exactly what's causing addiction and how to treat it. Sure, that's true. Few of us understand addiction today in the field of medicine. So that's a pretty astounding statement. But it's a challenge because the media has helped create this false impression of what has caused the problem and what sustains the problem. Every psychiatrist in the sense of the word addiction is an addictionologist. Look at the addictions to phobias, to fears, to rejection. And there's a process in our brain that make us continue to do something that may not be really productive in the long run. We're looking at the need to solve a problem with dysfunctional choices and sets of behaviors. Many people who turn to opioids are looking to solve their problems. Again, the nuances here are phenomenal, and it's something that can't be done in a few minutes. I love the story of you saying that many of these people would cry. That's so powerful. I put that story in my book, The Painful Truths, because it was so powerful. And, and it really set me on a course of understanding what I had to do with my patients in order to have the best chance of helping them. Talking about the message that the media, the mass media puts out there. And we have all these documentaries. There's the one on Hulu, Dope Sick, I think it is, yeah. HBO, where they had you on there. You know, watching it as someone, as a doctor involved in this whole process, they have these compelling stories. But it seems to me the message is really off. You see all this stuff, they go, oh, great. You know, we found the bad guys. We found the bad doctors. We found the bad pharmaceutical companies. They're all going to pay billions of dollars. And now we solved the problem. And you walk away. And I'm like, well, you know, it's some interesting, passionate storytelling. I don't think we've solved anything yet. With messages like this, where are we going? Right now, we're not going in the right direction. And that's why we see continuing rise of overdose deaths and the number of people who have drug problems. I just read today in The Hill, the start of the article was, our opioid crisis continued. And then they talk about 100,000 overdose deaths in the second or third line. It's not about opioids. It is about drugs. We have a drug problem, and the roots to the drug problem are not on the supply side. It's more about what's creating the demand. If we could find a way to address the demand, at the same time, mitigate the harm of those who are using today, we would make huge strides to reverse the tragedies that we're seeing on an annual basis. The CDC and others are predicting that we're going to continue to see an increase in overdose deaths. We're not plateauing for the next decade. I fear that's true because we are not looking at the core causes of what's driving the overdoses. And we continue to focus on prescription opioids when that's only a small part of the problem, all of the methamphetamines, we've got stimulants, and they're all being laced with the fentanyl. And most of the people who are buying these for non-medical purposes don't know that they're laced. So they become a casualty. Why do people use drugs? What is driving behind it? 
we need to understand that in order to decrease the demand and those who have a problem with it need to have access to treatment that's affordable, whether you're rural or urban. Too often, people don't have the money. I know I have family members who have a challenge to get access to the treatment of their substance abuse. They have no money. So if you have no money, how are you going to get treated? You're not. If you live in a rural area, it even is compounded because they don't, they don't have trained personnel. They don't have the facilities. And it costs money. And most people who really need this don't have the wherewithal to pay for it. It's not just shutting down the supply side, because that's probably something we can't do. We've set up a wound care clinic. We were instrumental, our tax force, in helping to set up a syringe exchange program in Palm Beach County. I'm in charge of the wound care component. There's my dermatologic skill where it comes into the yeah. opioid arena. Uh, the other night, we had a couple of new patients, and you hear the stories now. There's a guy who told me, yeah, he's doing fentanyl, and he does it mail order from China. Yeah, yeah. The internet. Who are we kidding who about shutting down supplies? So right. I see it as you're seeing it. We need to really do something about figuring out how to get the demand down. Did you ask him why he's using it? We were trying not to push too much because we just started the program. So we want to build up a good uh -huh. rapport with the community. So just getting them, some of the patients to talk about what they're doing and showing them that we're on the level with them. So we haven't pushed it too much yet, but I think we're going to start asking that question soon. What I've seen, most people are just saying, uh, is because I need it. Is this is what I need to do? And maybe sometime I'll get off of it. Yeah. If they live long enough, most people can get off of it. For some people, they've got to live 20 years, and that's going to be hard because this is a risky, risky <laughs> drug to be around. That is the fentanyl and the fentanyl analog. I don't know if you are aware, but I've done a lot of research on drugs of abuse. And I would have subjects come into my clinical research site that had a substance use disorder. They would be the subjects for my study. And I would be giving them drugs to determine how much they liked the drug. So these were abuse liability studies. I would often ask them why they got started using the drugs for non-medical purposes. Fascinating. Most of them are escaping something, mostly emotional. In some cases, they would choose to use the drugs because it's cheaper than beer and you can have a prescription that makes it legal. You can have a prescription bottle that says that it's legal. And so they could get their anxiolysis from their benzo or from their opioid, whatever it is that they're choosing to use and move on. And these are people that were not addicted. These are recreational drug users. How do we make a difference again? What you're doing right now with this podcast is to let the physicians that will listen understand this is a complex problem. Don't believe that what the media is giving you as identifying the problem. It's not about the supply. Supply is important. We have to understand why people are wanting to use the drug. We need to address the social economic issues. I think we need to address the laws that prevent doctors from treating people in an appropriate way. We need to provide harm reduction to those who want access at affordable prices. We need to have probably injection sites, treatment areas that will allow people to come in until they can basically burn out their need to use the drug. And that may take a few years. It could take a decade or more. At least they'll be alive. And most often, as we can see in most of the other countries, like in Portugal and Switzerland, they can be very successful working and tax paying while they are dealing with their disease. And we would often ask people, why do you do it? 
or ask other people, why are you not interested? And there was one guy, probably 25 years old, it's clear in my brain as, as anything. He said, my life is okay without it. I don't need it. And that just opened up my way of thinking to the dysphoria that people are treating yes. with the drugs. Yeah. And that's hard sometimes and very difficult to correct because sometimes it's building a career for them. Sometimes it's getting them out of a very dysfunctional relationship, whatever. And so it's to make the drugs not necessary to them so they can still have some pleasure. And it's not impossible, but it's a major task and it takes time. And that, of course, takes money. You're absolutely right. People who are using the drugs are trying to escape something. They have pain. If they want to get off of it, they have to have that substituted with something that is rewarding. Drugs give them a reward. It takes away pain. But if they can get into something that is equally rewarding or more rewarding, the drugs are less important and they can leave them. But that takes resources. It takes policies, government structure, laws that allow it to happen. If you really want to make a difference in this area, this is where we need to focus less on trying to reduce the supply, the prescription drug supply. The illicit drug supply, if we can reduce that, that would be great. What about in terms of people who want to be treated and go through recovery? What's been your experience? What's your perspective on all the latest MOUD, as they call it now? Yeah, for opioids, that's the most effective treatment we have. 60% or more of the people who voluntarily enter MOUD treatment with methadone or buprenorphine are going to do pretty well. I won't say that they are cured because there is no cure. You can evolve out of this. You can be maintained. As I said earlier, you can have a job. You can make a living. You can pay taxes. You can have a quality of life. And you're a lot, but you have to have access to it. And it has to be affordable. And we need to make it more accessible to areas of the country or in a state that currently doesn't provide that type of service. We also have to motivate people to want to do that. Because another thing I've heard from my limited experience in our wound care clinic is people telling me, yeah, I've tried uh, Suboxone like half a dozen times, but I just really wasn't motivated to stick with it. You're not going to convince most people. I mean, most people with an OUD right now, opioid use disorder, they don't want it. You can't force somebody. What we have to do is set up a structure and a system that is there for them when they are ready. It's just not taking them off of the drugs and transferring them to methadone or buprenorphine. Give them something else. As Abby said, some alternative that is a reward. You take away their rewarding substance, they have to have something else in life that they have an interest in, a pursuit, some enjoyment. It's possible, but it takes a lot of work, a lot of insight, and we have to look at this multidimensionally. It's not just a silo. Dr. Lynn Webster, thank you so much for this illuminating conversation. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.